we give him a welcome? I once read that inside many men are hurt little boys wanting to be set free to grow up and mature. I thought I had a normal upbringing, but I lived in a dysfunctional family. When my mother was 15 years old, her 17-year-old sister died from drinking poison after an argument with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend was so grieved after her funeral that he shot himself over her grave. My mother found his body when she went to visit the grave. She still had trouble sharing her feelings at 82. My father was always hesitant to share his feelings. He did, he did share with me about some of his war experiences and I remember him saying that he couldn't believe in God who allowed such suffering. I don't remember my father ever having a man-to-man, relation, uh, sorry, a man-to-man conversation with me or my three brothers. Our parents loved us in their own ways. They, had all, they always made sure that we had enough food and clothing and provided a good home. They were also determined that we would have a, a good work ethic. However, growing up, I was taught to be quiet when others were speaking, not to share my feelings and not to trust anyone and to keep my opinions to myself. During my early primary school years, I was sexually abused by two older males. I never told my parents about the abuse or my brothers because I was too ashamed of it and I knew I couldn't share my feelings with them anyway. During my secondary years, I went to all-boys schools where physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse and pornography were rampant. At the, year, at the end of year 10, I had passed only three subjects, trade practice, trade theory, and the extracurricular subject of survival. I then worked at, as an apprentice boilermaker welder in, a, in an all-male environment. Soon after becoming a tradesman, I was drafted into the army, which was also an all-male environment. I had no confidence in talking to girls and was very nervous being near them. I still am somewhat, although I am improving. After army discharge in my early 20s, I went from relationship to relationship until I met my first wife. Before our marriage, our marriage, I became a Christian by accepting Christ, but my heart remained locked in the chains of the past. I read the Bible and believed that Christians were new creations. They were transformed, renewed, and are whole people. They don't have problems in life. I also believed that if I accepted that I had problems, then I would reveal myself as a weak or worldly Christian. Our marriage was not based on love, as neither of us, I believe, understood what love was about. It was more of a selfish, needs-based relationship. Although we had four wonderful children, our marriage was often stormy and eventually ended in divorce in 1997, after 22 years. I had grown up as an angry child and had learnt to live with dysfunctional relational pain as if it was normal. I have since learnt that anger in, many, in its many forms is a common reaction to being abused or misused and, in de- and denial is a common consequence of anger. <clears throat> My second wife, Marianne, and I have now been married nearly 10 years. Marianne is often very straight to the point and I clearly remember her saying to me once, you are an angry man. I also remember my reply, I'm not an angry man. <laughs> she said, you're raising your voice. I said, I'm not raising my voice. I didn't want to be angry and I certainly didn't want to, be ang- to sound angry in front of Marianne, so I eventually became angry about being angry. And because I didn't want to be angry, I denied being angry and I would get even more angry. I hope I haven't lost anyone. During Marianne, Marianne's and my warmer discussions, it took me some time to speak without raising my voice. In fact, I had to work real hard at it. 
I had to keep telling myself, I am an angry man. I really am an angry man because I didn't accept the truth. Then I, asked, then I started asking myself, why am I angry? What's making me so angry? The truth about me slowly dawned after completing a search for significance course some years ago. I realised that for me to become healthy and whole meant that the lie of pretending that things are okay had to come to an end. Since then, I have completed more life courses, life force courses, and my precious wife, Marianne, has been very supportive. I believe the major key to my healing and my closer and stronger walk with the Lord was in my accepting the fact that I was damaged as a child and was not taught the way of loving relationships. Forgiveness has also played a major role in my road to recovery, in particular forgiving those who abused me all those years ago. I thank the Lord for courses like Man to Man and Valiant Man in this church, which have been of great significance in helping me to grow and mature. I highly recommend these courses for any man who is willing to help that hurt little boy inside who wants so desperately to be set free, to grow and mature and to be closer to the Father who loves us so very much that he sacrificed his son for us that we may have life in all its fullness. I'm so glad that I took up the challenge to work towards change. It wasn't easy to face the false me and grow towards wholeness, but it has been well worth it. I am now experiencing more, relation, more reality in all my relationships. I like the new me much better than the old one, and we are becoming best of friends. That's what God does. He changes us. He takes a lump of pretty, muddy, yucky-looking clay and he makes a beautiful masterpiece out of it. Fred, that's beautiful. Thank you. Just, I don't want you to go because we're going to pray, but if you just, this morning, the scripture that we're looking at is from 531. And it's about divorce and marriage. It says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. It's tough, tough um, words from Jesus. And, but we also know that our Lord is with us and our Lord loves us more than anything else. And Fred, you're real proof that God loves you and has restored you. So let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you are blessed and your name should be blessed. We thank you so much for the amazing things that you do for us in our life. And I just want to thank you for Fred and the way that you have taken all of the mud and all of the muck and you've transformed him and you have created a new creation. And Lord, we just thank you that when we give our hearts to you, we have the chance of having new parents and new parentage and that comes from you. You plant in us, implant in us your DNA, your DNA which gives us a new spiritual life, a new moral fibre. And we just give you glory and thanks for that. That is beyond measure. Lord, we praise you for new life. We thank you for the birth of Michael. We thank you, Lord, for um, bringing Mavis here this morning and for the amazing restorative, physical restorative work you've been doing in her life. 
oh Lord, we, we pray for all of those that are undergoing treatment. We particularly think of Trisha, Trisha Swaby at the moment, Lord, and pray that you would heal her. Thank you for your healing hand in Kathy and Nairi. Oh Lord, thank you so much for all that you are doing and all that you will continue to do. Lord, we think of your promise. He that has begun that good work in us will complete it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that all our failures, all our brokenness, all our shame can be laid at your feet and that we find forgiveness, healing, hope in you. God, this morning we want to come before your word and I just ask you to give me uh, your wisdom and uh, may the words that I say be yours, God. And I just pray that as we look at this passage together that we would know your heart and that those that feel the pain of uh, divorce and separation would hear your, your words today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the benefits of working through um, a passage, um, section by section at a time, is that you just have to hit every section head on. There's no sort of moving around. And it's good because just everything is given equal weight. And this morning, we're on a passage that I don't think people would normally just go to as a passage to preach on. Uh, I think the reason is because it's painful. Uh, for some of you here this morning have gone through the agony of divorce and some of you have experienced the deepest sadness in your hearts as a result of uh, going through divorce. And each of us here have in some way or other seen or heard or witnessed or um, been in touch with some, some of the untold pain that comes with divorce. Over the last 50 years or so, there have been so many changes in our society which continue to eat away at the family and they've become increasingly under attack as, uh, in, in this time. Today there seems to be an emphasis around uh, more on rights rather than uh, duty, you know, what, what I want rather than what I can, can, can give. There also seems to be kind of an unrealistic expectation today of uh, sustained happiness and that uh, marriage will be continually a, a, a wonderful experience. There also seems to be uh, the removal of parental support as in years gone by parents were always close and able to provide support to a married couple. Seems to be less the case today. And the acceptance of divorce as being and remarriage as being part of our society also adds to this. And also a decline in kind of religion or the Christian faith 
in our society too has added to this as well. There seems to be more of a pressure on husbands and wives as they're both now more likely both will work and balance parenting as well as the relationship. And all this has led um, to divorce becoming something that happens often in our society. 52,399 divorces uh, took place in Australia in 2003. Uh, 2005, just two years ago. They're the latest figures that I have. You know, the truth is you can't go through divorce without uh, horrible shame or without some levels of guilt and embarrassment. No one can stand up on the day of their wedding and say before the people there uh, vows, irrevocable vows, and state them categorically until death do they part that they're going to stand by this person and then at a future date walk away from those vows and feel good. You just can't do that and maintain your integrity and still feel good. You have to experience through divorce a, a certain level of disappointment, a level of brokenness. And I don't know what it must be like to just have to say to your friends and family or to your parents, you know, your, your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law is not going to be around anymore because our relationship has ended. We're divorcing. Why does Jesus dive here into this matter of divorce in the passage that we have before us today? Why does he, why does he talk about divorce? I think for him... It was an illustration, and he was making six illustrations in this passage in chapter 5. And he was making a particular point in each of these illustrations. And that was the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes and teachers of the law would take the law of Moses and would say um, that providing we keep the letter of the law, we can stand justified and pure and upright in God's eyes. And they could say, we're good people, we're right, we've kept the letter of the law. And Jesus would say, no way. You know, you've got to get behind the spirit of the law, he says. You've got to get to the heart of the law because God doesn't want you just to do external acts. He wants your heart and he wants you to be living for him from the heart. Have you kept the law, he'd ask, to the very depths of your heart. And last week we looked at uh, adultery and the Pharisees were saying yeah, we haven't actually committed adultery we haven't done the actual act of adultery we've never physically touched another person so we're right and Jesus says well good on you that's great news but you know the, behind the law is that if, if you've even done that in your heart if you've looked lustfully at a woman then you're, you've committed adultery in your heart and he was talking about adultery last week because it interferes with and damages the marriage relationship. It causes untold uh, damage to that. Lust does the same thing and it, it interferes and it breaks it down and injects into the um, marriage relationship um, a, a dirtying adultery, the lustful thoughts. So Jesus, for Jesus now, divorce comes into the same bracket as adultery and he's talked now about lustful looks, he's talked about adultery, and now he talks about divorce as being the utter 
ending of the relationship and, and how horrible it is. It, it destroys this marriage relationship with God, which God intended to be a reflection of what he's like. See, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in community, loving relationship together is what God intended for marriage to be, a male and a female, honouring God together, continuing to love in a permanent, lasting relationship. And so adultery brings pollution to it. Lust brings pollution to the marriage and divorce utterly wrecks the marriage relationship. So Jesus opens up this section with just four words. It has been said. Jesus kept referring back to the law. And his desire, remember we said, was to correct the wrong interpretations. People were interpreting the law and distorting it and changing it to make their own meaning. And Jesus wouldn't have anything of that. And so he, he comes back to the Pharisees and here he's trying to correct what, what they were interpreting the law as meaning. Now, I wonder this morning if you can turn or in your Bibles to look to what the law was or you can follow along here because this is where it was. Deuteronomy 24 and verses 1 to 4. And this is what it says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your, your God is giving you as an inheritance. So that's what the law says. So this morning our questions are, what was Moses on about when he wrote that in the law? What were the Pharisees saying about that in the time of Jesus? And what did Jesus say about that? Um, first of all, Moses wrote the, these words when they lived in a society when there was no um, kind of birth, deaths and marriages department. There was no place where you could uh, go like that. And they lived in a society where adultery was considered one of the vilest and most horrible acts you could commit. In fact, it was considered so vile that adulterers were killed, just killed because of that act. And they, they would die if they were convicted of adultery and therefore... Um, Moses is saying that if a relationship comes apart and the couple separates, it's imperative that the woman in particular has a certificate. Without a woman on her own, without a certificate of divorce, would not be able to remarry and would be destitute in that society where women depended so much on males for their support and for their survival. And therefore, Moses is saying that you've got to write a certificate, a piece of paper to state categorically that this woman is no longer married so that if she comes into the orbit of someone else and another person uh, starts a relationship with her, then she can show the, relation, the, the certificate of divorce and there's no danger of him being killed for committing adultery and, and that can happen. 
It was a way of guaranteeing that when you brought someone into your home or into your tent that they were in fact single and that they were not married to someone else. That was the reason for the certificate. Nothing to do with God's intention for marriage, which has always been one that would be a continuing permanent relationship of community between a man and a wife that would be honouring and loving of one another always. Here, this is a concession that's made in that time for the benefit of the, of the uh, female and of the male in that society. Now, Moses said, if you find something indecent about your wife, something displeasing, um, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him or finds something indecent about her, and, and then... The, the saying here is that you're free to write a, divorce, a certificate of divorce. Well, what does that mean? What, what, what could be so indecent that the man could write a certificate of divorce in those days? Well, it, it doesn't actually say. Moses doesn't actually spell it out. Um, the, the word carries a whole lot of connotations, this indecent word. It talks about polluting or uh, damaging or something obscene. And we would sort of bring it all together by saying... It's more than sexual activity, which means adultery. It definitely would include adultery, but it's, it seems to be something more than that. It, it means somebody whose behaviour is so horrible that it's impossible, impossible to live with them. Whether their behaviour has to do with patterns of abuse, you know, with uh, physical violence or whether promiscuity is happening all the time or whether they've abandoned the marriage vows and have moved out altogether and there's no way for reconciliation. Someone's behaviour has become so obnoxious that they've just, uh, that they've, they've, their ability to live with them has ceased. They've no longer abandoned, they've no longer have a commitment to the marriage. And because the vow to love and to cherish was so strong, now they're no longer doing that now. They've become utterly self-centred. They've become utterly sinful. And Moses says, when you get to there, it's over. It's so indecent that there's no thought that you could ever go back with them. And if there was, then it's not indecent enough. It's a little bit vague, isn't it? It's not clear, the whole meaning of that word. It doesn't actually expel it out, but it's something horrible, horrible. When we come to the New Testament, we see that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were legalists. They, they were trying to figure out um, how they could divorce and do it in a way where they could divorce and feel happy about it. You know, they could say, we've done the right thing before God. We can get rid of our spouses and feel like we haven't wronged God in any way. Is there a technical way that we can do this and feel justified? Uh, therefore, they needed to state categorically what this indecent behaviour was that Moses was talking about. And in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought that were going around at the time. One was headed up by a rabbi called uh, Shammai. And his theory was that Moses meant by indecent adultery, the act of adultery. And he said that's what, what Moses was dealing with, this sexual act that interfered with the one flesh relationship of marriage. 
So he said, if your partner has committed adultery, then and only then may you divorce her. That's the grounds for marriage. You know, it was very cold and legalistic. The sad part of this was that you could be living with a partner who kicked you and beat you mercilessly every day. Perhaps there's incest going along between the marriage partner and children, even in the family. And yet, if there was no adultery, then there's no grounds for divorce. You must keep going on with that marriage. On the other hand, there could be a marriage that in and of itself was going along quite okay, but then one silly mistake by one of the the marriage partners, and that's it. Grounds for divorce. Adultery. That's it. You can now do it. Uh, Very legalistic and cold. The other school of thought was Rabbi Hillel. And his theory was that indecent, that Moses was talking about, just meant anything that you want it to mean. I mean, if you wake up one morning and your wife hasn't got breakfast ready for you, that's indecent. You can divorce her. You know, that's what he was, this rabbi was saying. Grounds for divorce. You know, if your partner was, wasn't looking as attractive as they once did when you, you liked someone now better, then she now looks indecent. Therefore, we can divorce. You know, if your partner watched sport too much on TV on the weekend... You know, indecent. This is what this rabbi was saying. Anything, it meant that whatever something was, you can be rid of them. Now, that was such a liberal, open um, interpretation. But that's what he was saying. We can stand before God because something indecent has happened. But what did Jesus mean by indecent? It says here, it has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. The word marital unfaithfulness Jesus uses here. And actually, that's not what the word in the Greek uh, means uh, or says. It's not, it's not a, it's a word in the Greek is called pornea. It's a Greek word. And pornea is another word that was similar to the word that Moses used of something indecent. And, And the word is the one that we get the word from Pollution from, pornea. It's also a word of uh, pornography comes from this word. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, it seems to have a, a dirtiness about this word, a real damaging about this word. It seems to have a kind of sexual connotation and it, it also um, seems to be along the same train of thought as Moses had. If you're living with someone and their behaviour is dirty, polluting, damaging, horrible, then, and wrecking the relationship, then, it, you know, it seems that if they're not committed to the vows, then this seems to be something that Jesus is, uh, is identifying here. If they're not bent on loving you and supporting you, if they're self-centred, if they've turned right around, then we would say, grounds for divorce, but I want to stop right there. And so this is what Jesus was completely against right through these passages. 
us wanting to find a grounds for divorce. Uh, Jesus wouldn't have that. Uh, He's trying to get to the spirit behind the law. And what Christians do too readily is they look through through verses and go, oh, Matthew, and it says, here, uh, you know, marital unfaithfulness, that's the grounds for divorce. And I don't think you can do that. I really don't think you can divorce ever and feel good before God. I think that what Jesus is saying here is, hey, marriage is a permanent, forever community of love between husband and wife under God and is not to be ended. Uh, it's, it's something that is to, this is my plan for marriage to continue on. And then he's saying, hey, here, there's no loophole, but it seems that there is a point where human sin causes God's plan for marriage to be so distorted, so violated, so damaged that it's conceivable that after trying every way to avoid it, pornea has made it too much. And at that point, I think God hates divorce and realises that the marriage breakdown is a failure of human sin and is never good. But God says, in this situation, there seems to be some kind of exception, some grace, some openness. If you're living with someone who's horrible, then you're not confined to life of suffering under an abusive damaging person. I think there seems to be some room. On the other side of the coin here, if you're the initiator of the damage in the relationship, then you're completely, if you're you're the one that's uh, not committed to your partner, then there's no two ways about it. You're completely in the wrong God's intention is for marriage couples to always be working together. And if you're the one that is causing the pornea, if you're the ones that are causing this marital unfaithfulness, then you're in the wrong and, and you must turn away from that. And, and you must be totally committed to your partner until the moment of death. And it's unthinkable that you would leave your partner and abandon those vows that you made with one partner to go to marriage partner number two and then say, well, now I've made these promises to someone else which I haven't fulfilled and, and now I'm wanting to stand and make these promises to you. And that's just not on. Jesus won't have it if you were doing that and yet you'd committed marital unfaithfulness, the pornea here in this marriage, then to go and do that again is is like committing adultery. It's like adulterous thoughts. And he said, that's not going to happen. That's wrong. So if you say, well, I've had enough of this wife, but I'm going to make vows to another and I'll be loyal to them and faithful to them until death does part. No, that type of thinking, Jesus says, is wrong. And Jesus is coming against that. But for those who have suffered pornea, those who are broken, have tried everything, have abandoned, uh, have felt, have been abandoned, and have been with someone who has abandoned the marriage vow, then it seems there's kind of uh, a, a, a spot there. We would immediately ask, well, because we're kind of legalists, a bit like the Pharisees as well, and we want to know, we want to know, well, how much indecency, 
how much pornea do we have to endure until we can then divorce? You know, how much must I suffer and how much must the horrible behaviour be before I'm free to walk away from marriage? How much? And again, Jesus would just have nothing to do with that. Don't even, don't even ask that question. Just keep trying to keep the marriage going. Keep forgiving. Keep loving. Keep doing that. But, but when we think about that whole, whole thing, the, there is no answer. There is no answer. Only you can know and the attitude that says, I've mucked up, uh, this person's mucked up my life, now I'm out of here. Jesus says, no, that should never happen. No, you just can't go like that. The attitude of a Christian is saying, he's mucked up my life, but I'm going to forgive him and I'm going to keep going. And how many times? 70 times 7? How, how many times? Keep, keep forgiving, keep loving, keep doing that. Um, there's an attitude, this is the attitude of a Christian. How far can you go with an obnoxious partner? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. And I couldn't tell you how far to go. Only you will know that. But I think there's an awful tendency for us today to bail out too soon, for people to give up. And I think that Jesus has taught us to go on and on and on. But I think there is a point where it becomes unbearable when a person is so broken that there's grace. And in those times, an overriding principle seems to override even the marriage um, principle, which is, I think, for the welfare of each other. In places of uh, abuse, in places of um, complete pornea, then the welfare of the people kind of is, overrides the, wealth, the, the, the desire for the continuation of marriage. I think Paul talked about this. You can turn over, if you like, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and Paul, too, saw times when there seems to be a time when it seems permissible to actually allow marriage, a, a divorce, to end, even though it's not God's desire and God's will. It's still sin. It's still horribleness. But it seems like this is what happens. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, He writes, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. He's on exactly the same as Jesus is. You know, a man must not, must be united to his wife. The two become one flesh. Don't let that ever be separated. And he's saying here, no, they must uh, stay together and not be separated. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her partner. So here, Paul is saying, this is God's ideal, but, but, there seems to be, because of the fallen state of man, if she does, then she must remain unmarried. So he's open to the possibility that in this horrible time it could happen. And then um, it says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A, unbel- a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Now here what Paul seems to be saying is that if there's a husband and wife and one of them finds the Lord and becomes a Christian and the non-believing wife uh, or husband uh, is not committed to the marriage vows in the way that this Christian is, wanting to live in permanent community of love, of giving, of sharing, of loving one another as God does, then 
the unbelieving person who wants the divorce, the believing person can allow that to happen. So I think what's happening is rather than the believing person to hang on and stubbornly say, no, I refuse to give you a divorce, I refuse to give you that, I refuse to do that, I think what's been happening, what's happening here is Paul is saying, because of peace, because of peace, in verse 15, we allow that to happen. And sometimes that may be another situation where it's not God's ideal It's not what he wants. It's still human sin. It's still horrible, but it seems to be another situation that's foreseen. You know, in Victoria, we have the Department of Births, Deaths and Marriages, and when people get married, they transact a contract, you know, uh, and the state of Victoria has a stake in that contract, and you sign paperwork, and uh, it's sent to the government department, and it's registered there officially, and it's a legal transaction. So then when a marriage falls apart, you also transact another piece of legal business. Uh, You go back to the Department of Birth, Deaths and Marriages and you enact a divorce. All this happens at a government level. But not for us, not for the people of God. You know, when we get married, you know what happens? We come here to the church and at one point in the service we go and do our little bit here. It's just at the end. It's the official legal part. But the core and the heart of the marriage happens here where the vows are spoken to one another and where we say them before God and before our family and friends and we ask God to bless our marriage and we ask God to, to join us together as, as, as a married couple, the two becoming one, and we ask that he would bless that. And that being the case, when the marriage has ended, isn't there a place for coming back to the people of God? I mean, isn't there a place where at the end, just saying to, each, to, to the people in the community of God, listen, I can't go on. I can't go on. This behaviour is too much for me to bear. It's beyond what I can cope with anymore. And if I'm to step out of this marriage, will you bless me? Will you help? Will you bless me? Now, I wonder how we'd go as a church with that. I wonder how we'd go. But you know what I, th- I think? I think that it might be that we could say, yes, yes, we've agreed and, and we would bless you even in this act. Or we might say, no, no, we don't think you have uh, been through down, down the road hard enough yet. We don't think this is um, so horrible or pernia that, that's been happening. We think you need to hang in there a little longer. We, we think you need to push a bit more. We need to, you need to be more gracious, forgiving. You need to work harder. And when we come to the end of the marriage, the, the problem is often we want to do that in isolation. We want to have everyone there at the start, but we want to do it quietly and privately in our own thing and make our own choices about whether it's time to divorce. And I, I just think... Wouldn't it be great if we said equally when it comes to divorce that we come back to the people of God and we say, you know, is this right? What do you think? If the church is functioning as the people of God, ought not we come before God then too? I'm not talking about a members meeting. (laughs) That would be terrible. But in one way or another, I think in our small groups or amongst our close Christian friends or with the pastoral team or in some other way, I think it would be great to have a submission where people say, look, this is what's happening. 
it, you know, what do you think? What do you think God's saying? Am I doing the right thing? And equally so, you know, what about the offending partner? Obviously, it's never just all one or, or the other. Often it's people contribute together. But, but what about the, the, the offending partner, if there is one that's more causing the problem? The polluting partner, the one who's abandoned the vows. They wouldn't, I'd imagine, for one moment come to church because they're the initiator of the damage and they know that they're going against God's intention for marriage and they just tend to disappear from our midst to not be around anymore. But when they come back and they say, oh, hi, we'd like to be married now, found someone else, we'd like to be... Surely the church would have a right to say, hold on a minute. (laughs) Uh, We actually married you before in a relationship that you didn't, you know, honour and you caused damage to, now you're coming back and asking us to marry again. I don't think so. You've already wrecked one relationship and we're not happy in playing our part and launching you into another relationship. I think it's important that the church takes a stand when it comes to remarriage when we have an offending partner at that time. You know, the truth is, though, there are those who have polluted marriages and done terrible damage, you know, maybe abandoned wives or abandoned husbands or gone off with someone else. And at a future time, they've felt a real deep sense of repentance and grief over the past, grief over their past behaviour. And they've come to God and they've come to know, you know, at the cross I bow my knee. And they've found his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness in brokenness, in, in, in laying it all at his feet. The past has been dealt with. And I think from this point, people are new creations and God has come back in and, and they've given him the first place in their life again and they begin again a new life with God. And I think the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's how we take them at that point. The past is dealt with. There's no uh, condemnation. We open our arms back to them and we welcome them and the slate is clean. But until they reach that point of brokenness and confession and repentance, those who've walked out on their marriage vows just can't walk back in and say, hey, church, bless my marriage now. I think we need to have a part in helping people find healing before remarriage takes place. You know, in Matthew 19, the same uh, issue comes up, uh, quite a big passage there in Matthew 19. And look what it says. Some Pharisees came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And, you know, Jesus doesn't even answer the question He says, the question you're asking is wrong. You're getting all legalistic trying to find out the means to. I want to go right back to the beginning. And I want to tell you, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He didn't answer the question at all. He went back to the biblical model for marriage. Two become one, never to separate. 
you know, he's saying, don't you understand what marriage is? You won't even think in terms of divorce if you understand what marriage is because marriage is the coming together of two people in one flesh. It's an act of God and you can have a tree and you can take a branch and you can nail it to the edge side of the tree, come back in two years and just pull it away and there's no difference. But if you get a tree surgeon to put that branch into the side, leave it for a couple of years, come back, try and pull that branch off. Oh, damage. You have to rip it. You have to break it. You have to saw it off to get rid of it. It's destructive. It's damaging. You have to pull because the two have become one now. They're grafted together. And so it is with marriage. We're, We're held together. We make our vows before God. We become one flesh in the act of marriage. We become one flesh more than just the physical act, though, but our hearts and our souls are joined together. And to rip that apart, there's no way you can ever do that without incredible, incredible, pain, incredible suffering. And Jesus says, you know, that's not my intention. I don't want that to be. So don't even start thinking about the the laws and the ways in which you can. He says, you know, the thing is, I hate divorce. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And marriage isn't just about being together because it's nice. No, the reason that God causes the bond together of male and female in such deep oneness is that it might demonstrate what relationship between us and God is like. He wants us to live in relationship with one another in a way that he wants to be in relationship with him. He says, I am the husband and my people are the bride and I passionately love my people and I'm constantly tolerating my people and I'm constantly forgiving my people and I nurture my people and I provide for my people and I care for my people and when they're doing what's right and honouring me, it's a beautiful thing. And he says that our lives in marriage are to reflect that in our every day, every day. And this is illustrated clearly in, um, by the, prophet, the story of the prophet Hosea. His wife, Goma, uh, Hosea and Goma modelled this. God said to Hosea, listen, your marriage, I, I want you to write about it. Uh, he said, I want you to tell everyone the story about it. He said, it's going to be a living de- demonstration of our relationship. So we have in the story of Hosea, you know, this married girl called Goma and what she does is she has three children and, and then she moved out with another man and Hosea's uh, heart is, is still open to her. His heart's broken but he's open to her and now you talk about polluting marriages, she runs off with another man and Hosea had the right to opt out but no matter which way you interpret the law, whether you go, you know, uh, Shami or Hillel, then whatever way, he had the right to divorce. But he said, no, I'm not going to go like that. I'm going to go to the nth degree and I'm going to continue to love. I'm going to keep going. And Hosea, God said to him, hey, just keep on reflecting that I'm the way I'm a husband to my people. Keep on doing that. And so Hosea did. And he he continued to try and reach out to his wife and express his warmth to her and the relationship didn't last between Goma and her other man. And so what happened is she didn't come home after that even. 
Even though Hosea was reaching out, uh, she went on to another guy and the next guy was not nearly as well off. And a matter of fact, he was really poor, quite financially strapped. And so Hosea says, hey, I tell you what, I love you so much, Gomer, that I'm going to give financially to your new husband so that you're looked after and that you're cared for. And so he uh, he, uh, uh, helped her and he went and got money and he went and sought out this guy and he gave money to him so that his wife could be right. Listen, he said, I know that you're up against it, so have this. What drives a man to go to that level of forgiveness? What drives a man to keep doing that? What sort of love absorbs so much that's done and yet continues to love? Everything inside Hosea was from a natural level kind of, you know, would have been to get revenge and wanted to get back at her or be spiteful. But instead, he has compassion, he has love, he has continued giving to her, constantly forgiving her. Well, the relationship didn't last and we don't know how it happened, but we know that somehow he decided to take Goma down and sell her as a slave. And uh, he would get money for her sale. And so... She was taken out to the slave auction, auction and the people started to bid for her. And she was humiliated beyond belief. And Hosea made sure that he was at the markets that day and he kept bidding for her. And it didn't matter how high the figure went, he kept bidding and he won her and he paid for her. And immediately she was bought, he put a gown around her and a veil over to cover her disgrace. And he led her quietly from the market home. He said, you're my property now. You're my slave. I can order you around. All I order you to do is be faithful to me. And I put myself under the same orders. I'll be faithful to you until the day I die. What a model of an incredible love. Do you know, God loves us like that. He doesn't ask us to love in any way that he's not prepared to love us. Though we've sinned, though we've failed, he continues to love us and he calls us to love our husbands and our wives in that way. I just want to ask you today, if you're married, uh, there's no better time than to love and forgive and to show mercy and kindness and faithfulness to your spouse than today. If you're married, covet that relationship. Keep it protect it, build, breathe life into it by loving and forgiving and doing that because that's how God wants your relationship to be. If, if that's difficult today, uh, ask, for, uh, ask for help. Our church has marriage courses. Uh, we have people that would love to meet with you together and to talk about that. But do something. Ask for forgiveness. Talk about it together. Ask God to give you the strength to love unconditionally. If you're already divorced today, I just want to give you, just in, these, in the next minutes, so the, the first thing is re- repent from that. Have you cried out to God and asked forgiveness? Even if you're only the 1% of, of the problem or if you're 90% of the problem, whatever you are, ask for forgiveness from God. Cry out and say, I realise that divorce is never what you desire and I'm sorry. 
then, then reconciliation is important with the people who have been affected, with your uh, previous husband or wife. Uh, try and do whatever you can within your power to help that be reconciled so that there's a, at least some kind of favourable working together relationship, that they know that you're sorry for your part in what you've done. And then the third thing I'd say is remain single until the equilibrium of your life has settled down again. You know, we get so damaged, don't we, uh, in, in when relationships like this happen. Many people have said a divorce is like being hit by, run over by a truck. You know, it's, it's worth it's than a death, some people say, because the person that you, you've lost is still living. And, and, and we're just out of control emotionally and, and spiritually. And, and I just reckon remain single until you've found healing and wholeness and health and restoration from God before getting remarried again. Really delay that as much as you can. What about the church? We, we want to be a, a holistic healing place, a community where you can find hope and acceptance no matter what your brokenness, if it's divorce, if it's adultery, if it's anger, if it's whatever, this is a place where God offers you his grace and his mercy for those who are broken and realise that they've fallen short. We all have. And today God wants to give you his forgiveness and to allow you to be restored and healed. Can a divorced person serve in this church? I think... There's no position in this church that a divorced person would be uh, barred from at all. We don't want to elevate being divorced as a sin worse than anything else. I think what we do want to do, though, is make sure that in those times that there has been uh, repentance, there has been a seeking of reconciliation, and there has been healing and wholeness that's taken place since that. Any leader needs to be a person of great reputation, and again, I would say the further time, there needs to be a time between the divorce and the healing before it's wise for someone to be in leadership positions. You know, God wants to say to us all, those who are married, honour the marriage. Give everything you can to that. Those who are divorced, come to him broken and find his forgiveness and healing. And to those who are now looking at remarriage, be wise Take time, get all the help you can get so that if you marry again, you're able to come back to doing, beginning a new marriage as God intended forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your desire for marriage to be the most incredible place where we gather, where we love, where we share, where we give and receive in mutual trust. God, help us to live lives that honour you in every way. For those that are hurting today, we pray that they would find healing and restoration as they come to you for mercy and grace. God, you are one that can turn brokenness into wholeness. And right now, this morning, God, you want to touch lives that have been filled with shame and with guilt and with suffering. And you want to 
take those who have been hurt and abandoned and feel worthless and you want to tell them that on the cross you gave it all. God, help us to live in the light of what you've done, receive your forgiveness and receive your healing and help us to begin lives that are lived not in our own way, not in our own rights, but in your power and in your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.